Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I'd ask that you open them back up to Psalm 34 if you closed it. Uh, and, and while you keep a finger there, go ahead and also turn over to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 21, because we're going to be reading there also in just a moment. I heard a co-worker say the other day that, you know, we need to remember and pray for people around Christmas time because Christmas time is a time uh, that is difficult for a lot of people. There's many people who uh, this, this time of year is, is hard because of different things that have gone on perhaps in their lives previously or that are going on currently. And I can, I can see that. I mean, because just imagine sitting around the dining table. You're sitting there around the dining table. The family's gathered around all together. Uh, they're waiting to eat the meal, but the tension is high. And you just know, you know that before long, there's going to be an argument that starts and the family's going to be yelling back and forth at one another. And, and it's just that old family feud that's going on. You try to come together and, and enjoy Christmas time, but it just isn't working. Or maybe instead of there being an argument and a lot of yelling and screaming, maybe you're sitting there around the table and you look and there's that one chair that's empty because a beloved member is no longer with you. Or maybe, maybe it's not that at all. Maybe, maybe you can't be sitting around the table at Christmas time because you're laid up in a hospital bed. Maybe your family's all up there with you and, and you can't celebrate the way you normally would. So I can, I can certainly see how Christmas time would be a difficult time, a time of distress rather than a time of joy. But listen, friends, even in our distress, we can delight in God. And so today, what I want to do as we look at Psalm 34 in a little while is I want to see how we can delight in God even in the midst of distress. We all experience affliction, do we not? We all experience a broken heart. Uh, it, that's just a shared trait amongst humans. We all face distress and hardship and trials and suffering. We, we all go through it. Why? Because... We live in a broken, sin-ridden world. So it shouldn't surprise us that we all face distress and affliction. In fact, if you have just go and watch the news for any amount of time, you can see that we live in such a, a world that is full of disease and, and, and murder and, and human trafficking and abuse and, and persecution and death and it can seem so bleak and so hopeless when you just stare out at the world and look at all the news headlines and see everything that's going on and you can start to think, man, how in the world can a person delight in God in a world like this? Well, I, I believe that Psalm 34 has the answer. The 34th Psalm, which is a psalm of praise, it was written by David in the midst of many bitter and, and, and life-threatening trials and situations that he was going through. Uh, according to the superscription, if you'll just look there at Psalm 34, as we read just a moment ago, it says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. And so you think about what's going on in this passage. I want to go back and see, okay, this is giving us context, and I, I believe it was last week 
Pastor Rob had said, hey, you, you can't ignore the superscriptions above the Psalms. They are so important. They give context. They give background. And so I want to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, and I want to read through and, and see what the context is of this psalm that is being written that we're going to be looking at in just a little bit. Now, to give you a little background here, because I can't just keep giving background and background and background, right? Just a brief background of what we're about to read in 1 Samuel is, is the background is, we're all familiar with it, 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath, right? We all know that, that passage where David goes out and he defeats Goliath, right? Now, in case you weren't sure, Goliath was called Goliath of Gath, all right? Goliath of Gath. And so, <coughs> excuse me. And so I want us to look and see the background of that because there was a, a time when David, he, he, defeated, he defeated Goliath and people loved him and people were praising him. And you'd think that that would be a good thing. In fact, you'd think that the king, Saul, would be glad. But there came a day where they were saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul got bitter. In fact, he set out to kill David, and so David began to run. And really, from that day forward, Saul was eyeing David to kill him and to put him away. And so David was running and Saul was pursuing. And so that's the background we have, all right? So look, if you would, 1 Samuel chapter 21. I want to start in verse 10. 1 Samuel 21, starting in verse 10, it says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Chapter 22, verse 1, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and, became, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So David is on the run. He's on the run from Saul. He runs to this land, this place called Gath, which immediately ought to trigger in our minds, hey, that's, why would he go there? Isn't that enemy territory? Didn't he just kill a couple chapters ago Goliath of Gath? Wasn't there a great victory? And, and so wouldn't the enemies be wanting to kill him? And so he's going into enemy territory. Don't know why, except maybe he just was so desperate he was willing to do anything. So he flees to this place and Saul's in hot pursuit and he gets there before Achish, the king of Gath. He's seeking refuge, but he becomes very much afraid because he had killed the Philistines' best, best warrior, Goliath. And so to try to get out of this situation, he, he feigns insanity. 
He changes his behavior before them. He starts scratching on the doors. He starts letting his saliva roll down his beard, and, and he's just pretending to be crazy. And of course, the king sees him, and he's like, Why, why'd you bring this crazy guy to me? Why would you bring this guy around? And just a side note, in the ancient Near Eastern world, to mess with a madman was, was considered bad luck. It was considered a bad omen. And so you wouldn't mess with him. And so Achish, the king of Gath, wants nothing to do with him, right? And so he's like, I don't want this guy. And so David is able to flee and he's able to leave and he finds himself in this cave and people are gathering around to him. And it's in this setting that David pins Psalm 34. Look there at Psalm 34, if you would. I know we've read it. I want to read it again. So if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Psalm 34 of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Father, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to make clear here at the outset what my goal is. I want us to know how we are to respond to affliction in the midst of trials, right? How are, we, how are we supposed to respond to affliction? How are we supposed to respond to the hardships in our life? And, and so from this psalm, what I want to do is I want to suggest six responses, six responses to affliction that will help us delight in the goodness of God. So number one, first response, we should delight in God's goodness by praising him. We see this in the first three verses. What do you notice about David's worship? There's a few things I want to uh, point out about David's worship. In fact, we'll, we'll probably spend about maybe, I don't know, half the time in the first three verses, and then we'll wonder how we're going to get through the rest, and, and we'll do it, though, all right? 
But what do we notice about David's worship? First of all, his worship is deliberate. It is intentional. What does he say? He says, I will bless the Lord. I will bless the Lord. His worship is a decision. It is intentional. No matter what else is going on, he is making a concerted effort to fix his attention on the Lord. But his worship is also persistent because he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Again, it doesn't matter if he's in the midst of distress or if he's in the midst of joy. It doesn't matter if he's facing affliction, if he's going through trials, or if he is living abundantly. He will bless the Lord at all times, not only in times of comfort and peace, but also in the times of suffering. Now, that's difficult because a lot of times it is during suffering that we are tempted to turn away. How many people have we known who have lost a loved one or have gone through some kind of hardship? They've maybe lost their job and everything is crumbling around them and everything just seems to be going wrong. And they say, why would God allow this? And what do they do? They turn their back on God in the midst of their affliction. But listen, it is, it is in those times when we need to be deliberate and say, you know what? No matter what, I am going to praise the Lord. I think of Job. Think of all that he lost. And what did he say? He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So I implore you when times are hard, when things are at their worst, Set your mind on the beauty and the grandeur of God. But furthermore, we see that his worship was vocal. It says, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Thinking about God, meditating on God, those are both essential. And I, I encourage you to do those things. But vocal praise is the culmination of our thoughts and our meditations. They become praise. Our thoughts and our meditations become praise when they are expressed by singing or speaking. Uh, just to illustrate this, let me give you a quote by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, some of you probably know that, he expounds on this idea in a very helpful way in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. He says this, he says, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless hindered by shyness or the fear of boring others. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most. While the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either 
that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Have you you ever done that? He gives an example. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? I might take it a step further and say, have you read this book? Have you seen this movie? Did you go see that play? Hey, did you see the sunset last night? You're wanting people to enjoy it with you. The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise, he continues, what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. So when you are thus filled with the wonder and amazement of God, and you are overflowing because of the joy of God, it will naturally spill out into adoration of the one whom you love. And so you see, of course, this in our text with verses 1, 2, and 3. But we also notice that his worship is boastful. But not boastful in David's own abilities or what David has done. It's not boasting about anything other than the glory of God. I mean, really, what do we have to boast about? What, what should we boast about? Scripture says, let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Listen, every good thing we have, we have from God. James chapter 1, verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Listen, the wisdom that you have, the might that you have, the riches that you have, the talents, the provisions, whatever it is that you have, you have because of God. Even and especially the gift of salvation. You have no right to boast about your salvation. You were not wise enough to, to get saved. You were not smart enough or special enough to save yourself. If you think that you were clever enough to recognize your own need for a Savior, you're wrong. If you think that you were smart enough to trust in God for salvation when you heard the gospel message, you're wrong. It had nothing to do with you. A favorite quote among among reformers, or rather I should say the reformed, is Jonathan Edwards. He said, you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Listen, you recognize your own sinful depravity because God opens your eyes and gives you understanding. 
2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God, not you, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You didn't do that. God did that. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Who came and gave it? Not you, the Son of God. He gave us understanding. Why? So that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You come to God not because you decided you want to seek him out, but you come to God because the Father draws you. John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Isaiah 55, verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. So pause for a moment. You may be thinking, well, I've never trusted in God. How do I know when he's drawing me? How do I know when he's near? Well, listen, if you desire repentance... And if you are wanting to put your trust in God for salvation, if you want to turn away from your sin and turn towards God, then do it. That is Him drawing you. That is Him opening your eyes so that you can see. So turn to God and embrace His goodness. Call upon the Lord and let your soul boast in Him. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you realize what God has done for you? Listen, when you're going through these hardships, when you're going through affliction, when you're going through trials, pause and think about all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And let your soul boast in him. If he was willing to save you from your greatest need, if he was willing to deliver you out of your, your deepest pit, that is the pit of sin, will he not also take care of everything else? Notice too that David's worship is contagious. He calls the humble to hear his praise so that they too will join in. Now, you look at this and it says the humble. Well, the humble, I think, refers to those who've been afflicted. I consider those who, who came to David at the came of Adullam. It said, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. So imagine all these people coming together, these people who are in the midst of affliction, in the midst of distress, in the midst of trials, gathering around, and David is calling them to praise God with him. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. These people who are in such dire circumstances, who have nowhere else to go except to the Lord, are being called to praise God. God. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're, maybe you're at your wit's end. Then hear of the goodness of God and be glad. He calls these others to join him 
Because there is sweet, sweet fellowship amongst believers when we come together and we lift one another up and we praise the Lord and we share our burdens and we, we help edify one another. Oh, what great fellowship there is in that. So let us delight in God's goodness by praising him. But also, let's delight in God's goodness by testifying about him. David has gathered these people around. He's called the humble to gather to him, to listen up and to praise God. And he gives his own testimony. He gets personal. He says, I sought the Lord. I sought. Now, what's beautiful about this psalm is other than the superscription, it makes no reference to the actual event that spurred this psalm on. You know why I love that? Because then we can take this psalm and apply it to so many other afflictions that we're facing. Not just one particular trial, not just one particular moment of distress, but affliction in general, right? And so he's testifying and he says, I sought the Lord. He sought the Lord. How did he seek him? I think it was through prayer because what's the very next thing? I sought the Lord and he answered me. Well, how did God answer? He delivered him from all his fears. He delivered him from all his fears. Look there in verse four. I sought the Lord, he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Look, David had a a lot to be worried about, didn't he? He had a lot on his plate. If anything, if anyone, I would say, had a right to be concerned for their life and worried and a little bit anxious about what's going to happen, David, David. Why? He's He's on the run for his life from Saul, who is trying to kill him, and then he's fleeing into enemy territory, and they're wanting to kill him, and it seems like he has nowhere to go, so he's hiding out, and he, he, he just seems like he's in a deep moment of despair. Not all of us have faced moments like that. We've faced affliction, and we've faced distress, but consider David. He's been, he's been, his life has been, uh, hanging on the balance for quite some time. David, or Saul, has tried several times to kill David already. And he's still pursuing him. He's just escaped the Philistines. So can you imagine the inner turmoil that David faced? And God delivered him from that. Further, David says that there's a radiance in the face of those who seek God. People who are prayerfully seeking God Amidst trials and suffering, they radiate the goodness of God as they trust in him. They will never be ashamed that they turn to the Lord for help. I think that's what we we see here. It says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. And I think the idea here is, is that those who turn to the Lord for help are never going to be ashamed or disappointed that they did so. Look, there are many things you can turn to that you think might help you But those things will always let you down. Always. But not so with the Lord. David was able to pin this psalm in the midst of his affliction because he had his gaze unashamedly fixed on the Lord. And what was the result? The Lord saved him out of all his troubles. Not only was David saved from his fears, but his troubles as well. God dealt with his inner turmoil and his external troubles. 
So David's own testimony of his deliverance is an encouragement. It's a reminder that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he will rescue them. What a comfort to know that God protects his people. But he not only protects us, he provides for us. So a a third way that we can respond to affliction is we can delight in God's goodness by enjoying his provision. Look at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Look, we are commanded here to taste God. Why that word? Why the word taste? Why not think about God or remember God? Why taste God? Well, I think the imagery there of tasting makes the point that experiencing God is a pleasant and pleasing and satisfying thing. For instance, when we say that someone has a sour attitude, what kind of attitude do they have? Is it a good one? Is it a pleasing one? No, the word sour, we know they've got a bad attitude. If, someone's, if we refer to someone and say they have a sweet demeanor, or, oh, they are just so sweet, do we mean that they're, they're bitter? No. Why? Why did those words convey meaning to us? Because of our own experience with those tastes. When we taste something that is sour, we have the experience, we're like, ugh. Sometimes you meet people and it just makes, ugh. Right? You see so you, that somebody comes around and they're, they're bitter or they're, they're, you know, just constantly in a, a cranky mood and it, ugh, bitter. Or you see someone who's always filled with joy and you, you just smile when you're around them and you think, man, this person, right? They just, they do something that lifts my spirit. And so we have meaning with these words because of our own experiences. And so when we look at the idea of tasting and seeing that God is good, it is to be experienced. His goodness is to be experienced and it's to be enjoyed. So when David tells us to taste and see, he wants us to recognize and experience God in a very personal and intimate way. Experiencing God feels good. Like like honey, he is sweet to our souls. Like water, he is refreshing to our spirits. Like salt, he adds flavor to a life that would otherwise be dull and bland. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. David was hiding there in a cave. But thinking upon God and praising God, how much more, though he was hiding in a cave, how much more was he taking refuge in the Lord? What is one way that we can taste God's goodness? Look at verse 9. This poor man, excuse me, O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Fearing the Lord, reverencing him, means that you will be trusting in and living by 
his sovereign provision. You will have no lack. Now, this is not a prosperity gospel. Trust me. I'm not saying that you can name it and claim it, or as I said to Todd the other day, you can blab it and grab it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that the Lord will provide for you no matter what. You will always have his provision so long as you are fearing him. Do you see that? Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. There's a a stipulation, a qualifier. Those who fear the Lord, there are plenty of people who do not fear the Lord. But those who fear the Lord will have no lack. Listen, we can enjoy the provision of God and we can delight in his provision. You, you, You think about this. I find the very next verse, verse 10, interesting because he immediately goes to the young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So just imagine a, a, a wild beast, a lion, out in the wilderness. I mean, don't you, I feel like every documentary I see, they're always chomping down on a zebra or an antelope or something. And you think, man, they've just got it made. They go eat whenever they want. They can, they can always have everything they need. They rest all the time. There's probably water, an oasis around. No. There's times when the food is scarce. There's times when the water is dried up. And they go without food. They go without water. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We can enjoy the provision of God no matter the circumstances around us. Whether we are in the middle of a hardship or things seem to be going good, God provides for his people. Paul reminds us of that in Philippians 4.19. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a man who is saying this, who has also just got done saying, I know how to, I know how to be starving. I know how to be poor. I know how to go through hardships. He knows what it's like to be shipwrecked. He knows what it's like to be beaten. He knows what it's like to be thrown in jail. And here is a man who is, after experiencing many of these things, is saying, the Lord will provide for you. He will supply every need that you have. Now, to be clear, his provision. Now, this is where I get to the point where this is not health, wealth, and prosperity. To be clear, the provision that, we, that God gives, that we experience, it may look different than we expected. How many times have we prayed for a loved one who's in a hospital bed and we pray for their healing and then they pass? So many people might be tempted to say, why didn't God answer our prayers? Listen, if that person is a child of God, he did answer your prayer. 
They are no longer hurting. They are no longer in distress. They are no longer suffering from disease or the corruption of sin in their body. They have been made new and glorified. So his, his provision may look different than we expect, but it is still his provision and we are to be content with it. We should enjoy what God gives us. In fact, Luke had mentioned earlier, 2 Corinthians, I just want to turn there, you don't have to, but 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or chapter 12, I did the same thing. <laughs> chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians, look at that. 2 Corinthians, I'll get there, don't worry. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Starting in verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Pause there. You think, I'm in the midst of this trial, I'm in the midst of this hardship. And it just doesn't seem like it's ever going to get better. And God is not answering my prayers for healing. He's not answering my prayers for a job. He's not answering my prayers for a raise. He's not answering my prayers that this would, would be solved in some way. Friends, he has provided his grace. His grace is sufficient for you. Why? Continue. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with what? Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. How can he be content in the midst of distress and affliction because he's enjoying God's provision. He's enjoying the grace of God which displays the strength of God in his weakness. Number four, the other way that we can respond to affliction is we can delight in God's goodness by fearing and obeying him. We see this in verses 11 to 14. Just look at verse 11. He says, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, I can't help but imagine David calling the people to gather around him as he's at the cave of Adullam so that he could teach them. All these people who were in distress, all these people who were in debt, all these people who had some kind of trial or affliction, he says, come. Come. Come, O oh children, listen to me so that I can teach you the fear of the Lord. David is giving instruction to those that are gathered around them to fear God. Well, what is it to fear God? It's to tremble. It's to tremble in the presence of his strength it's to reverence his majesty. 
It's to be in awe of his glory, but also to fear God is to obey him. Because notice, he says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Don't you want to live a, 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 an abundant life? Don't you want to live and see many days and experience your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren? Don't you want to have a good life? Then keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Oh, how many need to be taught to fear the Lord. There is a, a propensity in our society to view God as less than he is. which leads us then to approach him casually. Jesus, listen, it's going to sound funny. Jesus is not your homeboy. God is not the big guy upstairs. These are casual ways of referring to someone who we ought to fear and reverence. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the righteous judge of all the earth. He is the King of glory and the sovereign creator of all that is. He is holy and just, good and gracious. He is both righteous and wrathful. He does not wink at sin and not a not a single trespass against him will go unpunished. I think of Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2. Solomon writing, he says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. How many times do we, do we come and just real quick, dear Lord, thank you for this meal. Thank you for everything you do for us. Bless everybody. Amen. We just come and, and treat that moment as, as though it's just, we're talking to anybody. Hey, how you doing? Hope you, hope you have a good day today. Just a passing thing. Instead of recognizing that you are, you are petitioning the holy God to bless the food that he gave you to the nourishment of your body so that you can then turn and go out being satisfied and do work for him. And you think you can just come up casually? I'm not saying that we can't come to him. We can. We can come boldly to him. Listen, if I was told you can come before the, the king of England, that's weird to say now, the king of England, used to be queen. <laughs> if I was told you can come up before the king of England, I wouldn't just be like strolling up and saying, hey, how you doing, man? 
No, there would be a certain demeanor about my, about my, I would behave a certain way. Why? Because of who I am approaching. How much more so with God? Oh, how people need to be taught to fear the Lord. In other words, as Solomon said, recognize who you are and who God is. You are on earth. He is in heaven. Or think of Job. I thought you were going to get into this earlier, Luke. Yeah. When Job started getting a little bit too big, when he got a little too bold, how did God respond to him? Let me just give you like one of the first lines. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Does that not help us put into perspective who God is? Listen, we need to be taught to fear the Lord. A better understanding of who God is allows us to view things in in their proper context. Luke mentioned earlier, he said, one of the worst things, and, and, and I can't imagine this, but suffering with bad theology. Oh, going through the midst of, I, I have heard so many people give such pathetic excuses and laments about why they're going through all that they're going through and woe is them. And they have such a low view of God in their suffering. Oh, I brought this on myself and, and uh, you know, the, the Lord, you know, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't help me. I, I did it. Friend, know who God is. When you face affliction, we ought to take comfort in the fear of the Lord. And we ought to obey him because of who he is. The fear of the Lord helps us live rightly and it is a a defining feature of the righteous. And listen, it is the righteous. It is the righteous who ultimately benefit from God's goodness. I, I see this in verses 15 through 18. Another way that we respond to the affliction in our lives is we delight in God's goodness by remembering his character. The righteous, those who fear the Lord, they experience the grace and the mercy of God. They are the beneficiaries of God's faithfulness. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. He is looking upon you. If you are a child of God, he sees you. You can be be assured that he will remember you because of who he is. He is your heavenly father. He loves his people and has promised to never leave us. He has promised to provide for us. He has promised to protect us. And so he looks on the righteous. He looks on those who fear him with tenderness and warmth and delight, lovingly watching 
their every move. And that's no less true of his ears. You look there, for instance, at verse 17. He says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Aren't you glad that God sees us and hears us? When you are faced with difficulties, when you're faced with affliction, when you're faced with suffering, aren't you glad that you aren't crying out into an empty void? Aren't you glad that there is a loving God who hears us? How many people do we have in this body who are in the midst of turmoil and distress and affliction and suffering? And they can cry out and God sees them and hears them. I think of Hezekiah. 2 Kings chapter 19. Turn there if you would. 2 Kings chapter 19. Just to give a, a, a brief, very, very brief uh, context, there is a, a threat of an invading army and a letter has been sent to King Hezekiah and he's receiving this letter and he's reading it. And so I want us to consider Hezekiah and the situation that he's in. <clears throat> Second Kings chapter 19, we'll read verses 14 through 20. It says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, God of Israel, Enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria Kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands have cast their gods into the fire for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us please from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone." Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. I have heard it. How comforting it is to know that God sees us and hears us in the midst of of our distress. Back to Psalm 34. He sees us and he hears us, but not so 
with the disobedient. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Spurgeon says this, he says, he will stamp out their fires, their honor shall be turned into shame, their names forgotten or accursed, utter destruction shall be the lot of all the ungodly. Listen, while God sees and hears the righteous, while he loves those who fear him, his face is against those who do evil. He draws near to comfort and console and embrace the brokenhearted, but to those who are outside of Christ, to those who have turned their backs on God and the gospel, to those who live however they please, the Lord is against you. He will not hear your prayers. He will not give you deliverance. He does not promise the things to you that he promises to those who fear him. What a blessing it is to know that we serve a righteous and holy God, but also how humbling it is to know that unless you belong to him, you will not experience the blessings that he has for you. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Listen, to those who think that God is so very, very far away, listen, he is in fact very, very near. And you can delight in God's goodness by remembering who he is. But lastly, you can delight in God's goodness by trusting him. I think the key to this last refrain, verses 19 to 22, is in the last verse. Because all of these promises are for those who take refuge in him, in the Lord. This is simply another way of describing trust, those who are trusting in the Lord, those who are fearing the Lord. We are trusting in the Lord for salvation, for protection, for deliverance, for provision. But the problem is, is that oftentimes people will trust God for the wrong things. They will trust God for things that he, he never said he would do. For example, you can't trust God to always do things your way. You think that would be nice, don't you? At times, you're like, God, if you would just do this. He doesn't promise that because we have such limitations in our understanding and our foresight in our ability to perceive our circumstances. And ultimately, we are just sheep. And we need a shepherd to guide us. But you also can't trust God to do things according to your schedule. That would be nice sometimes, I think. Turns out it wouldn't be. Why? Because God's timing is always perfect and always right. But what you can trust God to do is to keep you secure in his love, to provide guidance, to provide forgiveness, to supply all of your needs according to his riches, 
to always be there for you, to always be the same. He is unchanging. You can trust him to grant peace and joy in all things. But trusting God to do all of these things, it doesn't make it easier. It's still difficult. It's why it's called affliction and distress. Notice verse 19. Many, not few, not some, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. It doesn't say you won't go through affliction. It doesn't say you won't experience affliction at all. It says you will have many afflictions. And you may be in the midst of that affliction for any amount of time, but the promise is he will deliver you. It may be he delivers you from it in temporal means, right? Maybe he heals your body or maybe he provides a job or maybe he restores something that was lost or he may deliver you by taking you home to be with him. But he will deliver you. For those who trust the Lord, who fear him, who take refuge in him, he will deliver them from all their afflictions. Afflictions play a a vital, important role for the Christian. We see throughout Scripture that God uses afflictions and trials to sanctify us, to purify us, to show us that it is Him that we truly need. Spurgeon, again, he gives a quote in his book, Feathers for, er- Feathers for Arrows. He says, I have been all my life like a child whose father wishes to fix his undivided attention. At first, the child runs about the room, but his father ties up his feet. He then plays with his hands until they likewise are tied. Thus, he continues to do till he is completely tied up. Then, when he can do nothing else, he will attend to his father. Just so has God been dealing with me to induce me to place my happiness in him alone. But I blindly continued to look for it here. And God has kept cutting off one source of enjoyment after another till I find that I can do without them all and yet enjoy more happiness than ever in my life before. We think about our afflictions and we think, is it, is it always going to be hard? Is it always going to be this way? Listen, if you think that way, you have a very poor view of eternity, right? Because we are not going to be afflicted for all eternity as children of God. In fact, we look in Scripture and what does it teach us? It says, well, you know, we're going to have suffering and we're going to have turmoil and we're going to have afflictions for just a short amount of time. I, I love the way Paul, Paul describes it, right? <clears throat> he, he's sitting there talking about all the afflictions that we go through and he's like, it's just momentary afflictions. Just momentary, right? These momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How can he say momentary? You know what he's thinking? Just a lifetime. Just a lifetime of affliction. It's just a lifetime of suffering. It's just a lifetime of trials and hardships. It's just a lifetime of of leaning on God through all the hardships of life. 
But all of this momentary stuff is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. If we could just put on our eternal perspective lenses and think, you know what? I may only have 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years here on this earth. And it may be, it may be 90% suffering and affliction. But ultimately, it is preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And he will deliver you out of all this momentary affliction. For those who trust in the Lord, we have great promises. So the question is, is when we face affliction, when we face hardships, when we face trials, when we lose a loved one or when we get the diagnosis from the doctor, when we, when we lose the job and we can't support our family, when the bank forecloses on the house, when the child goes away, turns away from the family, turns away from the faith, when the child becomes a delinquent and starts doing things that we taught them better. When all of these things come upon us, how will we respond? Because affliction will come. And so for those who don't trust in the the Lord, they're going to be crushed by it. Their ultimate end is destruction because they do not know God. But for those who've taken refuge in God, for those who have trusted in Christ, for those who fear him, friends, we ought to praise him, testify about him. We ought to enjoy his provision. We ought to fear and obey him. We ought to remember who he is and we ought to trust in him. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe you're going through a difficult time. Well, listen, then I invite you. Come to the Lord. Take refuge in Him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we praise you. Lord, you are so good despite our failings, despite our misgivings. Lord, you continue to be great and wonderful. Lord, you continue to to surpass all of our expectations. God, even in the midst of trials and suffering, you're there and you hear us and you see us and you are good. So God, I pray that we would recognize that and I pray that we would lean more into you as we face affliction. I pray that we would trust in you and fear you when distress comes our way. And God, for those who are outside of your refuge, who've never trusted in you, who've never, who've never, Lord, sought you, who've never cried out to you, never placed their trust in you, Lord, I pray that their eyes would be opened and that they would see their great need for you because without you, they are hopeless, but with you, Lord, there is great blessing. We ask these things in your son's name, amen.